Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, proudly presented by Roast House Pub, where elevated culinary creations meet a fresh, evolving craft beer selection, making it one of Frederick's unique dining destinations. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I'm joined by Mark Edelson, the founder and VP of beer, one of the best titles that we've had on of with our guests, and Peter Corbett, the head brewer of Iron Hill Brewery and Restaurant. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thanks, Chris. So you're going on your 26th year in operation, right? right? We had our uh, 25th anniversary um, in November. So um, had a little celebration and it's been 25 years. It's been a long time. It's really cool. Uh, there's, I've had a few breweries on over the years that have been around as long as you guys, but it's not often that the founder of a brewery that's been around that long is who wants to talk <laughs> or, and, and a lot of times actually isn't even involved uh, in the day to day anymore. Sure. So it's, it's awesome that uh, you're joining me, Mark. Uh, um, Cause then we get to hear the story from the person who was there in the beginning. Sure. Uh, so why don't we start there? Um, how did Iron Hill come to be? What were you doing? before you wanted to open the brewery and then how did it become a reality? So, um, I have two other partners. Um, one that handles the, the business aspect of, of the business and one that was the culinary genius behind all of this. And uh, we were actually home brewers uh, before Iron Hill, like many brewery stories, right? You start in the home brewing, started as a hobby and then turn it into a career right and so uh, but you were you were home brewing when it was actually uh, well, uh you to. know it, it's really <laughs> interesting because we did this thing recently um called brew with a legend so i guess i'm the legend i don't know but we uh we ran a, a regional homebrew competitions around all of our stores and the and then we judged them and the winners um in each region got to brew their beer and, uh, and some of the proceeds went to their favorite charity, right? So I reconnected with a lot of home brewers in doing the brewing, right? And what I, the one thing that I realized was how much cool gadgets that everybody has that did not exist. I mean, we still yeah. were Cajun cookers, um, you know, some converted kegs stuff. You still use the picnic cooler, um, you know, all of that stuff. Although we did all grain. Right. And uh, but I the one thing that was most fascinated me was uh, that they had the one guy showed me what was going on in, in his carboys on his phone, because there's this little device you drop in the carboy that gives you the gravity and temperature of it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Right. And, uh, and I was like, we, we could use those. Right. But what I realized is that they don't transmit through stainless steel. So we couldn't throw them into our ferment. I said, this is great. We could get this technology really cheap. But no, it wasn't the case. So, yeah, it, it was much different. Right. And you had to figure your way. And there was not the Internet. So you, you had to really, it, unfortunately, the internet has been the downfall of the local homebrew shop. And it was, you would go to the homebrew shop 
and you would talk with people that were there about brewing because there's all these people and you're physically there. And usually the shopkeeper was extremely knowledgeable. And that's how we learned about those. So, so we were home brewers um, just as a, you know, that's what we were doing. And we were pretty good at it and won a bunch of awards. And the three of us were, were sick of our jobs. And, um, and we decided that, you know, maybe we could make a go of this as a business. And we decided to do brew pubs. And, and you know, we all quit our jobs. And, uh, and we started the first Iron Hill in Newark, Delaware in 1996. And how many locations are there now? Twenty locations. Now I watched the video. Which, which one of you wanted twenty? One of, uh, you, that one was of Kevin you wanted Finn. twenty. Yeah. So you watched our twenty fifth okay. anniversary video, so, right? Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. He well, he remembers it that way, I, and I guess I don't remember that far back, but I know mine was. <laughs> but um, but yeah, you know, we have twenty locations. We're in um, five states. Um, we're in Delaware, of course, where we were uh, originally, where our original store is, where we have three locations. We're in uh, Pennsylvania, where we have the most locations. I'm thinking it's 12, but and then South Jersey. Um, we're in Greenville and South Carolina, and we're in Atlanta, Georgia, twice. Do you do you own and operate all of them, or, or son yeah. of them? Oh, wow, that's a, that's because. So often it's, especially like this kind of model, the, once you hit a certain point, then there's like, just light, like you're licensing sure. the name, I, you but know, that's franchising awesome. Franchising that is tough on the brewery side, but, uh, and we have a production brewery in Exton, Pennsylvania that we opened at the beginning of 2021. So a little over a year ago. So we are that was... in wholesale distribution in, um, in three states. We're in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. That was probably godsend timing for you, I would think, right? Like that, that uh, having a place to package product to sell when on-premise sales were so constrained. Well, probably... I, no, well, it didn't work out quite that way, right? So uh, it oh, okay. was in planning. <laughs> Unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, um, we were under construction with four locations, including that production brewery. So um, as you can imagine, okay. the worst possible perfect storm of having that much money tied up in assets you couldn't use. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, we were, uh, but uh, this is what the pandemic taught us about the retail beer side. You know, we were building a production brewery really for ourselves and supplying our restaurant and always thought about, um, about, retail selling and wholesale down the road kind of thing. But once the pandemic hit, uh, of course our cans, you know, the only thing we had for many months was takeout. Right. And so takeout yeah. beer. And we always had been using the mobile canner, uh, to can beer and sell it out the door. Right. Um, as well as growlers and our can beers of course went crazy just as you saw off premise beer in general during the pandemic went up as everybody was drinking a lot at home and um what we did the only brewing we actually did was for mobile canning and we would brew batches put in in cans and and with the mobile canner and sell it but what we realized is we were halfway under construction with a production brewery that maybe we ought to get into uh, this is a great revenue stream that's more protective of the up and downs of possible future pandemic so we actually uh, we started construction again once the bank 
said we could do that. Um, you know, they were a little nervous when your yeah. revenue stream goes to almost zero. And, um, and we actually launched into retail ahead of completing construction. You know, we, we used a trusted partner that was actually helping us during the pandemic to make canned beer because we, we just we didn't have the staffing to, to really make all the yeah. beer we needed. So we had somebody that we trusted for many years um, and he did our initial launch quantities. We launched in retail and we started our first production batches in Exton at the end of 2020. Okay, so not quite perfect now, timing. Now, it was really but. off by about <laughs> half a year. <laughs> yeah. There was, um, as I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people over last year like that opened tap rooms. Yeah. Um, like, like a few months into the pandemic. And, and it's like, not only is it just hard to survive through that time, but then when you're a brand new business, you have no idea how to forecast. No. Because you have two years of almost useless data. Like there's there's no historical uh, information that you can rely on. Yeah. So were, were all of your did all of your locations survive yes. the last yes, two years? Absolutely. Well, that, that's congratulations. Uh, the the only that's one good. we actually closed temporarily was Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, you know, the center of, of cities, nobody was working, uh, nobody was out. Yeah. I mean, even takeout was a struggle for us there. So we closed for a couple of weeks um, and then opened back up once we uh, felt like there was enough, uh, you know, activity with that. But otherwise, all the other locations, although much, much lower in staffing and sales, um, you know, we, we, yeah. we relied on takeout and then we built back um so we kept the doors open. So you're, you have a very concentrated footprint and then you have a couple locations in sure. the South. How, how have you decided on that expansion? Well, you would love them all to be connected, right? But that doesn't always, you know, circumstance doesn't always happen that way. But, um, you know, our, our goals in expansion really are up and down the Eastern seaboard. I, Probably not much farther north into New England. Uh, you know, New Jersey is about, and, and uh, northeastern Pennsylvania is about as far north as we kind of have aspirations. And probably down as far south as as Georgia. Um, maybe looking to go a little bit farther west. But, you know, as we were looking at locations, um, you know, we struggle with some of the cost of things in the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. We'd love to be in D.C. and Northern Virginia, right? But, you know, I, and uh, but the cost of real estate there just so prohibitive. And we just love the South. Yeah. And um, and so we really started looking in that Charlotte area. And we found our way down to Greenville and found a great there was just a great opportunity. When we went in. We love Greenville. And uh and then some Atlanta opportunities opened up, and Atlanta's a great place to be. And so, uh, yeah, you know, but we, we're, our aspirations are to connect it back up with uh, additional locations. Okay. Um, let's take a real quick sponsor break, and then I want to hear the story of where the name Iron Hill okay. came from. <laughs> so we will be right back. Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations, located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, 
locally sourced culinary creations, and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, mom's spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts, Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs or one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. All right, so where did the name Iron Hill come from? So, you know, as we were thinking of a name for our business, right, we, we did, as you heard in the 25th anniversary one, uh, you know, we we had the idea that we would open more than one at some point if we didn't go out of business in the first one, right? So if we were able to survive through that. Um, so when we're thinking about a name, we're trying to think about, um, you know, when whenever you start a business, you think about local, right? and how you tie into local names. But if you think about uh, expansion of business, is that something that's going to get in the way? And so Iron Hill is actually, there is a location in Newark, Delaware, Iron Hill, which is um, which is a historic, there was a historic revolutionary war battle there, right? So as we're in that colonial corridor, um, if you're ever driving down 95 and pass through Delaware South, and you know the toll booths there. You know to the left there's this, what looks like, a, which is basically a hill, right? That is Iron Hill. Um, it contains a, lar- a large amount of iron deposits. Actually, the uh, pre-colonial, the Indians used to mine it there and make uh, arrowheads and whatnot with it. But um, but that's where the Battle of Cooch's Bridge and the Battle of Iron Hill comes into the revolutionary battle scene. And so it's got some historic perf- uh, importance to it and local importance to it. So it's a recognizable name locally. But as we started to think about a name, we said, you know, Iron Hill is a generic enough name and, and has some, you know, uh, masculinity and kind of oomph to it, and so we thought, you know, this will this should be a good name for it for as we expand. You know, people will, you know, it, it doesn't tie into anything necessarily, but it's a cool name. Yeah. And so that's what we did, and it's worked out great. Well, I mean, that was very smart because it would. I mean, it ties directly into where you started, but there are probably Iron Hills all sure. over the place. Like it, <laughs> even if it's just a, a nickname for an area, so it doesn't. It's not like, um, like when a brewery opens and they name themselves after the street well, exactly, on, right. or the, or or the, uh, or the like the small township that they're in, and then expand, and, and then it means and that's nothing. what we were trying to avoid for the long term. So how long after you opened the first location did you then expand to uh, uh, multiple locations? So we opened the second location. In, the first location was in 1996. So the second location came 
a little less than two years later. So in the early fall of 1998, we opened the second one. And then the third one came in 2000. And, um, you know, and then it just went on from there. When, um, so a lot of people I talk to will talk about like waves or generations of craft beer. Um, I would say you're, you're solidly in the first wave. No, I'm going to disagree um, with you with that one. Uh, we, although it seems like we're in the first wave, we're, we're, we're squarely in what would have been the second wave. I think, I mean, think about the early days where you've got the Sierra Nevada, right? You got stouts brewing. Um, you have some people that are celebrating their 30 plus anniversary with that. Right. And those so, are, there's a lot I less think, of them left. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think because you've been around longer, you probably count more waves, but you have to realize most of the people that I'm interviewing uh, have I, been open like three, five years is the old ones. So that they, they put three in like <laughs> most of, most of the people opening breweries now weren't even able to drink. So we were, when, when we opened, it was exactly at the wrong time, right? It was past what they were saying was the peak of craft beer, right? And craft beer has not okay. peaked yet. Right. And so you talk about waves, but it, the, there's never been a downturn really of craft beer. I mean, the pandemic disrupted it a little bit, but other than that, you look at a 30 to 40 year span, craft beer sales have continued to rise every year. But what you get in each of these waves is you get these um, just small players that come in and start closing because they're bad business people, right? And everybody says, oh, that's just terrible. It's, this is, you know, it's peaked, it's a fad, it's over. And all that really happens is the rest of us that are left take over all the business from the people that went out of business, right? Because craft beer drinkers right. don't go away. And so in the 90, in the 96 quarter, I mean, you think about uh, that. And that's a great wave because we all get together now and kind of celebrate it. I mean, Dogfish opened then. We opened then. Yards Brewing in Philadelphia opened then. Victory opened. Trogues opened. I mean, all these breweries of that uh, flying fish and we all kind of get to Sly Fox. We all get together and kind of celebrate um, and occasionally do a collaborative beer on that because we're all still here. Mm -hmm. We all still have pretty successful businesses. And uh, we're of that of that ilk uh, that, you know, we all celebrated our 25th anniversary in the last year. Do you think that it, it was was it harder back then to sell craft beer? Or is it like because there was so much more of the education aspect of it, like of I, of teaching people why why it's worth buying it, a premium beer, or now because of there's so much more competition? So I think it's equally as just as you stated. It was it's I think it's equally as hard, but for different reasons, right? Back then it was an education. Like why would I want to drink this stuff, right? And why would I want to pay more? And, yeah. and so you had to do a lot of it yourself, right? So it was, there wasn't a, there wasn't a momentum of industry out there that was carrying it, right? Now we live in where craft beer is hot. Everybody talks about it. There's social media, which you didn't have back then and all of that. And now it's a, it's a fight for shelf space, right? Um, there's just not enough. Yeah. Uh, there's a proliferation of SKUs that, 
you just have to fight for. And um, but you know, there the, there's the same things exist. There's high quality players, and there's players that probably shouldn't be in the market. You know, and we're all kind of fighting for the same space. How um how early on um was food a focus of what you're doing and i know from the video it was very early on but let's <laughs> yeah. have a well listen, since day one it really is since day one yeah. you know what we found um, and, Go ahead. and that was one of the things that um when i was like talking to people about iron hill is one of the first things they mentioned was that the food is always phenomenal that it's like a, they described it as elevated pub food that's a great way to kind of describe that's how we describe it as well but okay so from day one right i mean we decided to get into the brew pub business and um and and unfortunately this has not changed and uh, the the public opinion on on what was really just brew pubs back then food was that ah they're making great beer but the food is below par right and we just really saw that as a you know restaurant we always say you know, uh, we're a very successful restaurant, and if you close the door to the brewery, we'd still be a very successful restaurant because the food really stands on its own. And um, and unfortunately, I find that that is the one thing that's not changed 25 years later is people think brew pub and they think, ah, the food's, you know, an afterthought. And that's a shame. We've, we've worked hard to build our reputation, but we haven't impacted – the reputation of that. And unfortunately, I think part of it is the proliferation of tasting rooms, right? Which in general, um, people think of as brew pubs, right? We, we know how to differentiate them being in the industry, but, but the consumer yeah. does not. And so when they go there, particularly there, the food is even more subpar than it used to be, right? It's either an afterthought or it's not there, or if it's a food truck and, you know, uh, everyone, you know, the Food Network has told us that food truck is the greatest thing in the world, right? It's gourmet. And <laughs> unfortunately, that's about 10% of food trucks and the other 90% are, you know, food <laughs> trucks. And so it, it's... See, thankfully here in Frederick, uh, in Maryland, we're lucky. Like, mo like the vast majority of our food pr trucks are actually making really good food. So they're, they're not contributing sure, to sure. the negative perception of uh of the of brew pubs if people are lumping it in yeah. with that so the do do all of your locations have the a standardized menu or is it different they they across do. they all have the same okay. menu. So we do have chef's features. So the chef gets some creativity to do a couple of dishes, but that's what we've always had. And the same thing with the, um, so the beers, there's, uh, there's six core signature beers that are the same at every location. And then we do a variety of seasonals that rotate throughout the year. Some are the same at different locations and some are different with that. We like to keep a list of about 16 beers on tap at any one time. Do you do a lot of like, or many one-offs where you just, uh, with experimentation or do you stick more towards keeping things uh, predictable? I, you know, it's always a balance. So do we do one-offs? Yes. You know, some, you know, one-offs, the problem with one-offs is that sometimes you don't do them again because they weren't that good. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but uh, we do keep that. So customers think of one-offs, right. But in reality, 
if it's really good, you're going to do it again next year. Right. And so yeah. um, it's rare that you brew something that's really good and say, you know what, we're never going to do this again. Right. Of course you wouldn't. You, you know, people uh, demand to have it back. So, um, you know, we do a variety. You have to have pumpkin ale in the fall. You have to have Oktoberfest in the fall. Right. We have to have a dry stout <coughs> in this month. Right. There's just things that people expect and demand with that. And yeah. then there's the long tail of rotating stuff. Um, we, we, we like to be innovative with trying different hop varieties, um, trying different, you know, uh, barrel aged or sour beers or, or get into stuff that as it starts to become more popular within the craft space uh, to try to do that. Right, let's um let's take one more quick sponsor sure. break and when we get back let's talk a little bit about beer so yes. Pete can talk Absolutely. and not have to sit you there talk so- to <laughs> and and not have to sit there silently so we will be right back I buy my beer at District East in downtown Frederick Maryland they have an amazing selection of local and hard to find beers and I love the option of making my own mix and match custom six pack District East is on Northeast Street in Frederick in the same shopping center as Showroom Restaurant and Rockwell Brewery. Most weeks they have over 950 beers in stock. Check out this week's selection at www.districteastbeer.com. Are you planning on having custom glassware made for your business? Glassware availability for 2022 has already reached capacity, and it looks like costs will predictably rise this year. Don't worry, ACS Brand My Beverage has you covered with over 6 million units of the most popular glass styles exclusively in their inventory to meet your branded glassware needs right now. Lock in today's lower prices and take immediate delivery, or ACS will store your product for you until you're ready. Email sales at brandmybeverage.com or visit brandmybeverage.com to reserve your glassware. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today, best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition, and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. Do you brew at every location? We do have a brewery at every location, yes. Okay. The um, wait, what size, generally, what size brew house do you uh, have? At so each mostly pub? 10 hectoliter, which is eight and a half barrels. Uh, and okay. You, you answered me before. I could, I'm sorry. I think the first brewery I ever had on that used uh, a brew house in hectoliters was Guinness when they opened their Baltimore sure. location. So every time he would refer to their 90 hectoliter brew house, I would ask him to use a real number. So, yeah. Uh, so, no, so I always correct you, that, right? For the same. <laughs> so thank, yeah. So thankfully, thank, thank you for giving me the Ours real number. Are, um, well, they're made in Canada, right? And the Canadians love hectoliters too, right? They love to live in the metric system. So yeah. Well, probably because it makes more sense than what the rest of us in yeah, the what is United a barrel, States right? use. Thirty-one. How do we come up with thirty-one <laughs> yeah. gallons? That's not even consistent. But our our production brewery yeah. is a thirty-barrel brew length, and um, and our fermenters are uh, either sixty or one hundred and twenty barrels. Okay. Have you um, have you standardized on the same brew house? We across do. It's all the same manufacturer or? across all locations, and that makes. Okay. Uh, you know, 
one is we're just kind of locked in with that manufacturer. We're happy with how they make the brewery. We're happy with the quality. The other thing, it makes it really easy to go from one to the other. And, oh, it would and be it miserable it, for, training yeah, for training or consistency. You can kind of attest to that. <laughs> or if you have an assistant brewer that you need to say, hey, go on over there and, and take care of this. That other than possibly the brew house being reversed physically, right? Then you have to think mm-hmm. a little bit backwards, <laughs> which gets into trouble. <laughs> but the operation of everything is exactly the same. And so from a training standpoint, you just have to figure out where stuff is in somebody else's brewery, right? So when you first open, um, and I promise, Pete, we'll get to a question <laughs> that you'll want to answer soon. <laughs> All good. Um, did uh, who who did the brewing when you first opened? That was did me. you did that you or okay? So you you and I guess that's how you earned your VP of I Beer guess eventually, uh, title. Right? Is, yeah. So I'm yes. Legend. I, I start. I was the first brewer, and then I had an assistant brewer, and then I went to brew at the other location, and then he became the head brewer, and you know eventually. I was just in charge of brewing, but doing a lot of brewing. And then we just got bigger and bigger yeah. and, you know, and so we have a lot of people brewing and a lot of people overseeing people brewing. Do you, do you ever dust off the boots and, uh, uh you know, that's a great, qu- up onto I, I the... do. People laugh at me and my, my guy yeah, Pete laughs at me when I'm doing <laughs> that. Do you even know what you're doing up there? <laughs> And we just did these, the, like I said, we did the brew with a legend, which is collaborated with, uh, with the home brewers. And, and, uh, and so I brewed six times in the course of like four weeks. So that was, it's been a long time since I had done any of that, which was great to get back and, in, uh, into the brew house. All right, Pete, your turn. Um, uh, you joined, it was eight years ago. You joined Iron Hill. Yeah, I, I started with Iron Hill in 2013. Um, I wanted to make a career change, just like uh, 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 Mark mentioned. Um, yeah, I, I, I bartended. I, I worked in restaurants for like 25 years, and um, uh, I didn't want to be like a 60-year-old bartender. So I was like, ah, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Well, I could make let, – let me try making beer. So, um, yeah, Iron Hill was um, – I was a mug club member back in the day. Now we call it the, the King of the Hill membership. And, um, yeah, I, I loved it. I, I won a couple medals at the homebrew competitions. One specifically was buzz off, uh, that was held at the uh, Westchester location. And that was the first time I, I, I ever stepped foot in an iron hill. And, uh, what I was blown away with was just the quality of our, our, our beers. And then also the, uh, the food was just fantastic, you know, like chef prepared food, scratch kitchen. I mean, you just can't get any fresher than this. The pictures on your Facebook and Instagram pages look amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, which um, which locations are you brewing at, Pete? Yeah, uh, so I'm the senior head brewer at uh, the Iron Hill in Newtown, um, and also in uh, Huntington Valley, uh, both in Pennsylvania. Uh, I started in North Wales in uh, uh, 2013 as a server, just to get my foot in the door. Uh, to make the career change. And um, I started as an assistant brewer uh, probably a year later. So that was probably 2014, kind of worked my way up uh, the ladder. And uh, yeah, I've been a head brewer since I think, uh, 2017, I think. 
uh, is how long it's been. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I love yeah, it. I'll, it, pipe, it's just, I'll uh, pipe in on one thing with that. So, you know, <clears throat> we get a lot of people say, hey, I want to be a brewer, right? That have no brewing experience, right? And so mm-hmm. it's the number of times I could count that, right? And so people are like, can I just come in and work for free? Which we don't, you know, we have an intern program, but usually through American Brewers Guild or something like that. But what I always started saying to people is, hey, come work for us first, right? In another capacity, like serving or stuff. That was my standard answer. And then we'll see how you are and decide if it's right for the brewery, right? So I would just say that just to, because I was getting so many emails. And then before I knew it, uh, you know, uh, some of the brewers in the store said, like, hey, this get, this employee only joined Iron Hill because they wanted to eventually become in the brewery. And and Pete was one of those. And, and I all these years later, <laughs> I would say at least half of our brewery staff came in that way where they joined as a server or a kitchen employee only to get into the organization with the goal of being in the brewery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, when I first started as an assistant brewer, I, I would brew in the morning, and then I would also go uh, work the cocktail area at night, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, was very focused on moving up that ladder and, um, you know, just promoting our beer. Because, like, uh, like, how often do you get to say, like, from the guest perspective, like, oh, man, like, the, a, the, a brewer is actually serving me, you know. It was just... That was one of my favorite things that I, I miss about serving is uh, just kind of BSing about beer tableside uh, with the guests. Because people love that. You know, they love uh, talking with the brewer. And we still do that today. Brewers going, uh, you know, behind the bar and just, um, you know, hanging out and, uh, you know, hey, what do you what's what's in the mug? You know, and then, you know, it, it, it's uh, or dropping tasters. A taster is a conversation about, uh, you know, great beers. So when does each locate, is there a head brewer like for like a grouping of locations or does each location have a head brewer? So prior to the pandemic, that was mostly true, but um, uh, that there was a head brewer. But since pandemic, really, uh, like Pete, Pete's a senior head brewer. He's so he oversees multiple stores that have mm-hmm. uh, that have hourly brewers in them. So you have the production ones at each yeah, and then so, someone yep, overseeing. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so when you come up with a new beer, do, does each location kind of have autonomy to be able to experiment and then like it's work its way up to being a mainstay, mainstay beer or do you have like individual locations that you kind of use as test batching that that can make those new beers to be possibly become something well, that becomes I'll, I'll a regular. Let, I'll let Pete kind of go through and talk about some of the experience because Pete has made a lot of beers that work their way up. But, uh, you know, essentially, you know, there is some autonomy to try different beers. And as they become great sellers, the discussion does lead to beers that are brewed the next year uh, in more stores and then sometimes uh, throughout the fleet. Yeah, one one good example would be um, uh, Lemon Cerveza. Uh, that was actually my wedding beer. Uh, my wife and I got married uh, on the beach in Cancun 12 years ago. And um, before we went away, I, I, I brewed up this batch and had it fermenting in, in my uh, second bathroom. Uh, 
um, <laughs> while, while we were away. You know, the car boys just sitting in the bathtub. Yeah. Um, so it, it turned out great. We had a, a party at the house um, uh, after we got back uh, for everyone. It's like a housewarming slash wedding party. And uh, yeah, that that keg was gone in in about like like thirty minutes, and then you know I had another keg. So anyway, uh, years on down the road, when I was at Iron Hill, that was one of my first uh, homebrew batches that I got to do with Iron Hill, uh, and it was a smash success. And um, yeah, it's a Mexican lager. It's brewed with fresh lemon juice, lemon peel. Uh, just really great, easy drinking. And and now I just uh, found out that we're going to be doing it in cans this year. Uh, it was available on draft in most locations uh, uh, last year, and uh, I, I've brewed it in North Wales since uh, I, I think six years ago is when I started doing it uh, at Iron Hill, and it was every year it's just a huge hit, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty exciting to see it, you know, uh, my my wedding beer available uh, being available in cans pretty soon, you know, so yeah. <laughs> Lisa's who pretty happy um, about who that. does the label artwork? I, I like looking at looking at the different cans. I, there, it's a really cool, um, unique label. So we, have, we have a firm, uh, advertising firm that has done historically most of them. Although we do have, uh, I would okay. say we do have internal graphics uh, person who has contributed to some of the labels, but the bulk of them have been done by our agency. So now I guess that adds an even further layer of like beer promotion of like what's going to then go into the production uh, brewery to be put in sure. the cans. And is that, is I, and is that purely just what is selling really well at the pubs is what is makes it in the cans. I mean, it's kind of a stepped approach and this is how we discuss it with our wholesale partners too, is that, you know, we, we, we always start with draft, right? And then it's at a single location. And if it sells really well, you know, other brewers are like, other brewers want to drive sales in their stores. And they're like, oh, I'd, let me try that. And then enough stores do it. We're like, next year, let's do it uh, across the fleet. And then when that sell, when you see that it raised to that level and, and good sales is that's when we have consideration of putting it in cans. And we do cans that we sell in-house, but don't sell in retail, sometimes just to see. Okay. You know, we did spruce mousse this year, which is our, uh, around the holidays, which is our spruce beer, which you think, oh, God, a spruce beer. But it's a New England uh, IPA with spruce tips in it, right? And I love it, and it was yeah, so successful. Yeah. It's done right. <laughs> and we just released that in cans, and it was a huge hit. And then... Your, your comment was accurate because I, oh, I did good. think that. But it being <laughs> – but then your addition to it does – did make me curious what it tastes yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> it's very festive. Yeah. yeah it's literally – So we will but, con but certainly it, consider delicious. it for retail distribution in the future because of that. And that kind of allows us to step that up and see. Look, it's an investment in a label, right? You're paying money. You're buying the cans and putting labels on them. And so – you have to be careful about making those decisions because you you don't want one that is one and done, right? <laughs> you have to register yeah. it. You have to do everything that you have to do with it. And so, uh, yeah, you do have uh, you you have the luxury though of having an amazing um, test bed of what 
what your consumers want. Well, you know, people said when we built a production brewery, are you putting a pilot brewery in, right? I'm like, we've got 19 pilot breweries. I have 20 yeah, some of 19 pilot breweries. <laughs> Why would we need to do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what is your um, number one beer? What is our number one? Uh, Philly favorite. Wait, I don't what, know that that, that, that that King's Gold. Yeah, good he's, too. He, <laughs> the, he didn't ask the best beer, Pete. Right, but our best-selling beer is our New England IPA, our Philly favorite. Oh, definitely, okay. hands down, across in retail, across sales, across the fleet. Um, you know, I, it used to be a match between our light lager and our Vienna lager, um, and and rarely would uh, seasonals rise above that, but. Uh, you know, the craze of hazy and juicy beers, and, and this is our flagship beer, um, it just, it really beats everything out. I will say, in, but as Pete knows, in our cans that we're selling out the door, uh, we just released King's Goal, which is his award-winning beer, which we need to talk about. And, um, and it is outselling everything that we're selling in cans out the door in our fleet. It, it's uh, it's definitely delicious. Yeah, Doug did a phenomenal job on uh, bringing that to life in cans. So, yeah. So King's Gold was your mm-hmm. that was your recipe, your beer, Pete. Uh, t- technically, no, it wasn't. Uh, so oh. interestingly enough, um, uh, home brewing is where it all really starts. So uh, King's Gold originally, uh, I found that beer it, it at a. Um, a local homebrew competition called War of the Worts. Uh, it's a regional homebrew competition, pretty large too in the area. It's about 700 entries. I was a guest judge in 2018 um, to pick. Uh, I could pick any of the the, uh, the final table beers, or uh, there were 20 on the table, and I came across this pre-prohibition lager, and um, I was like, man, I, I I really like this, you know. So I decided to uh, pick that. Um, and, uh, we, I, I got in contact with the home brewer. His name is Matt King. Uh, and, uh, we, uh, you know, needed to decide a name for the beer and scale it up, brew it. Uh, we had a beer release in uh, May of 2018 with the Keystone Hops Homebrew Club. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, we, we went with the name King's Gold because it won first place best in show, uh, at the War of the Warts in 2018. Um, so when we found out um, later on it with uh, GABF that uh, since it was a BJCP sanctioned uh, homebrew event, uh, we could enter this into the Great American Beer Festival as like a bonus uh, 21st entry. I, I think they, they cap you off at uh, 20 entries maximum. It's in the like uh, Pro-Am competition. So the GABF yeah. has a mm-hmm. Pro-Am competition and uh, okay. where it has to be. Uh, a homebrew recipe brewed by professional brewers. Yeah, so we entered it uh, at uh, GABF. Matt King actually made it, uh, f- flew out there, hung out with us. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, we ended up uh, winning um, uh, bronze uh, for Souls and Eatson, which is an aged beer uh, that year. But uh, we found out the King's Gold actually made it to the final table at GABF. So it didn't place, but final table is is still wow you know because there's yeah. so many there's so many well, especially in uh, a, a, a that category 
where there's oh, yeah, going yeah. to be a lot of mm-hmm. entries. And, and it's a lot. Oh, yeah, the other definitely. thing that's hard about that is it's you know it's like a best of show. It's hard to judge. It's a lot of different categories, right? So. What are you judging it on, right? Does it become hedonistic? Oh. I like loggers more than, right? And so that makes it really difficult to stand out. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's even harder than sure. if it were just the an individual category. It's a great-looking can, too. The line yeah, looks yeah, angry. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I, I like or how the not uh, quite angry intense. I like how is the uh, the main is kind of like you know the land, the, you know the lay of the land that yeah. he rules over, you know, with the castle. Um. So so yeah. So with with that um with that beer reaching it to the final table, you know, like uh, the big thing about GABF is that we compete to learn. You know, uh, it validates the time we spend on quality and the creative energy that we uh, put into the products we uh, enter in uh, every competition. And um, the, 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 the judges' notes that you get back, the feedback is just invaluable. Like, um, like so w- with the feedback that I, I got back, because like in 2019 and 2020, uh, that was the years that uh, Iron Hill, like we actually uh, broke our streak of medal winning. We, um, we, we medaled every single year from 97 all the way to 2018. And then 2019, 2020, it was just like some dark date days going on especially with covid and everything and um uh to to read over these judges notes aj asked me what kind of beer did i want to brew uh for um great american beer festival in 21 and i was like you know what i want to give this beer another shot i want to give king's gold another shot so i took the judges notes uh that they left um including um it was uh oxidation was one well you know it was it was an older beer because uh, we brewed it back in May, and uh, the Great American Beer Festival is us- usually in uh, October. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so let's brew it fresher. Uh, the bitterness needs to be increased. Uh, pre-prohibition lager should be a little bit more bitter. So I was like, all right, let me increase the IBUs. And then the head retention was another thing that the judges commented on. So I was like, all right, let me tweak the recipe a little bit to uh, get get that head retention. Um, so... So this this time around, uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to nail this beer or I'm going I'm to make the most perfect beer I possibly can. And yeah, it, it definitely it definitely paid dividend, even though like, man, that beer just gave me problems from the beginning, you know, because I was using a lab pitch of uh, yeast and um, it just had a lag and I had to the beer was rushed. And like by the time I bottle it, it still had a little bit of haze and I was just all stressed out about it. But <laughs> it it, uh, it it hey, you know it what? Paid like, off you go, in the you, end. You get you go into GABF just thinking, ah, you know, I'm not going to come out with anything. And then, you know, uh, the day that uh, they announced uh, the, the award ceremony, which is in uh, uh, September, uh, Iron Hill and Exton, our, our headquarters, uh, the, the big brewery, uh, we had a little uh, uh, GABF party there. And uh, it was just nerve wracking just to see what they, what they had a live uh, feed on um uh, the, the award ceremony. And, you know, once it gets to your category, you know, your heart's just racing. And, um, you know, uh, so uh, ours was uh, category 38, uh, American Pilsner, which is what uh, pre-prohibition lager falls into. And, you know, like I, I saw like they were announcing the bronze and it was like it was it was a Rocket 100. It was a brewery in uh, Austin, Texas, I believe. And um, I was like, oh, man, I didn't win that. All right. Um, and then 
when they started announcing silver, I, I started hearing uh, like people freaking out. I was like, what is going on here? You know? And um, it was like, did, did I just win silver? It's like, no, you want gold. So I guess they, they found it <laughs> on the, um, the, uh, the, the, the feed on the computer was quicker than the, than the TV. So like, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. So I thought I was like, Oh, silver. Oh. I was like, I would have been totally fine with silver, uh, but like to, it's, I don't know, just to walk away with a gold, it's just like, wow, you know. Yeah. I, I I took a ba- I, I took a beer shower that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, somebody somebody shot a video of that moment, and um, I don't know. Whenever I'm feeling down or something, you know, I'll just watch that video, and I'm just like, yeah. You know. <laughs> It was uh, it was just uh, just just an unbelievable day, you know, like, um, you know, uh, was, was, so, you know, we're, we're starting a new streak, you know, so, um, yeah. you know, and especially with uh, now, like um, uh, the brewing staff got together. Uh, we really want to go over, um, you know, like uh, water chemistry is critical uh, to um, brewing uh, perfect beers. And um, that definitely helped with brewing iron hill because i've been playing around with water for the last three years and uh, yeah my the beers have definitely gotten much better over the years so um yeah you know uh yeah looking forward to uh you know the next uh the next the next one all right gentlemen uh congratulations on uh, i guess all of your success yeah Not the, the, your recent but that, 25 that was, years um, worth of Pete's success medal was our 49th gabf medal so over the course of 25 <laughs> years so we uh we got to round it out get to work get number 50 this year <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely try. Uh, so yeah, we got um, uh, we got the World Beer Cup coming right around the corner. Uh, the, the award, we just bottled our uh, beers. Uh, the award ceremony for that will be in um, May, I think May fifth. So stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys so much for your time today. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Great. Cheers. Thanks, Chris, for having us. All right. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh, my God. That's good.